Thank you, Ruthann, and thank you, Anita, for ministering in music. Psalm was read earlier. Be still and know that I am God. Let's take a few moments and just be still. Reflect upon where you are in life, what you're going through, and acknowledge God as our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Let's just be still for a few moments. <clears throat> Father, as we look at the pages of history from the beginning of time, we know that life has been hectic and hustle and bustle over and over again. But as we pause to reflect upon your sovereignty over our universe, over our lives, it reminds us that Life is about you, your glory. As we look at world events, may we learn to be still. As we look at things in our nation, may we learn to be still. As we go through the joys and trials of life, may we often pause to be still, to be silent, just to turn off the noise around us, to reflect on you. And as we interact with a portion of your word this morning, we want to be open, sensitive to hearing and living out your word. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. I have two pencils here, one real small one without an eraser, the lead is broken. And here I have a new pencil with a good eraser, really in good shape. If you had to choose, which would you choose? Well, for me, I don't like this one. This new one, it's a terrible pencil. You say, Pastor. Why'd you do that? Well, I was going to have a $100 bill and a $1 bill and hold both of them up and say, I prefer the $1 bill and tear up the $100 bill into many pieces, but I decided against that. But the religious leaders of Jesus' day, as well as Israel, before Christ, rejected the valuable. Over and over again, Israel rejected the valuable. Christ came along. They rejected him. And what did they choose? They chose that small pencil. They chose that dollar bill, if you please. Over what God revealed and over Christ. And in Mark chapter 12, as Mark continues to unveil Christ as the Son of God, we find that the religious leaders are rejecting Christ. Two weeks ago, we considered the parable of the tenants. We looked at most of the passage. want to finish looking at it briefly and then consider some applications this morning. But Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. He, then, Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it 
dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them beat. Some of them they beat. Others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Now keep in mind in the context of this passage that the twelve are with Jesus. Jesus is speaking to the chief priest, the teachers of the law, and the elders. And in this particular account, he's addressing them. And he shares the parable, and we know that he is speaking directly to them, speaking about God and his vineyard. And as we discussed two weeks, the vineyard being Israel. And remember the image of the vineyard in the temple in which Jesus was speaking. There was a vine. The coins that were used had a vine on the backside. The leaders here knew what Jesus was talking about. And in this particular account in the parable, we find that the owner plants a vineyard, puts a wall around it, builds a tower, and that would have taken time. It wasn't done in a month or two. It took time for the vineyard to grow. And in time, after months and months and months, the owner sends to get whether it be 50% of the harvest or 30%, depends on, depending on the arrangement that was made. But he sends someone to collect what is coming to him. And we know that they were treated shamefully. Israel treated the prophets shamefully, time and time again. Ultimately, the son came in the parable. Ultimately, Christ came. God sent Christ. But the vineyard, according to the parable, according to the flow of the context, is not a human possession, not even Israel's possession, but God's possession. It is his work. It is his purpose. In the rhetoric question in verse 9, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? The Greek word for owner there is talking about God being both owner and being Lord. God is the owner of the vineyard. As mentioned two weeks ago, and we discussed Isaiah chapter 5 as a parallel passage. The owner is going to come. 
He's going to kill the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And as you look at the flow of the passage, as you look at God's design for Israel, we know that God's design for Israel was not only for the Jews, but also to reach out to the Gentiles. And that was brought out in the account in Mark chapter 7, 24 through chapter 8 and verse 10, that God not only wanted to reach Jews, but also the Gentiles. But Israel resisted that. And God in turn condemned the temple worship in chapter 11 when he cast out the money changers and he said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you made it a den of robbers. You know, he's rejecting the worship of that day. The parable concludes then with a quote in verse 10 from Psalm 118. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It appears that there's no hope for the vineyard. The son has been killed. Keep in mind that Christ is going to be killed in a few days after Jesus spoke this parable. The son is being killed, Christ being killed. But yet we see a providential role that God is working out his will and his purpose, even in the killing of Christ. God is working that for good, for profit. Christ did not claim to be free from sufferings of the world. Rather, he knew that suffering was coming. And stop and think about the context of this passage too, that Mark is writing to the Roman believers who are going through persecution under Nero, and they think about what happened to Christ. They think about what happened to the servants who came. They were being persecuted. But God is still at work accomplishing his purpose. Verse 10 is is coming from Psalm 118. If you want to turn to Psalm 118, you can. In Psalm 118, we find that we have a psalm of thanksgiving. There's five books of Psalms that were used by Israel. Psalm 118 appears in the fifth book. The name of God, Jehovah, or Lord, is used 236 times in the fifth book. The emphasis is on Lord. The emphasis is on Jehovah. Elohim appears seven times. In other books of the Psalms, Elohim is used often and Lord is not used as often. The term Lord or the name Lord is referring to Jehovah. When you see it in the Old Testament in caps, it's referring to Jehovah, the independent self-existing one, the one who needs no one or no thing to continue his existence. When did God begin? He was. When will he end? He is and he will be. The independent, self-existing one who has no beginning and has no end is the primary focus of Psalm 118. In Psalm 118, we find a brief outline. We find a call to communal thanksgiving in verses 1 through 4. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. 
Let the house of Aaron say, His love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His love endures forever. Verses 5 through 21, we just have thanksgiving. In verse 5, in my anguish I cried to the Lord, and he answered by setting me free. The Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me, he is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. And goes on, he's praising the Lord. Then in 22 through 29, we have some thanksgiving liturgy. No thanking and praising God. And it is in this context, verse 19, open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which a righteous may enter. I give thanks. I will give thanks to you for you answered me. You become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 141, or Psalm 118, I'm sorry, uses Lord, or referring to the Lord, 41 times. Psalm 118 is rich and full and strong on the greatness of the Lord, the independent self-existing one. Mark's gospel is rich and full and strong on the greatness of Jesus. The Lord and Jesus are equal. When Jesus quotes about the capstone that was rejected by the builders, I'm sorry, the stone that was rejected by the builders that has become the capstone, he's talking about himself. The Jews rejected prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. The son came, Jesus came, and what did they do? The religious leaders rejected him. The chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders were rejecting whom? Jesus, who is Lord. Ponder that. The Jews are rejecting Jesus. who is Lord. The chief priests and teachers of the law and elders recognized that Jesus was speaking about them. So what do they do? Go back to Mark chapter 12. They looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. They recognized their heritage. They recognized that they were choosing this small Pencil and rejecting the Lord. Rather than repenting, they look for a way to attack by arresting Jesus. But again, fear keeps them from the desired action. 
but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Now, as you think about this parable, you see it is dominated and permeated with a sense of God's strong providence. True, it looks as though the schemes of the rebel tenants will wreck the owner's vineyard, but they do not prevail, nor can they. Even the son, in his mission of coming to collect from the tenants, is killed. But keep in mind, Christ came. He was to be, or he was to die on the cross. And it looks like defeat for him. He's dying on the cross. But the Father's vineyard is not dispossessed or destroyed, but rather the wicked tenants are judged. And others more worthy are found to continue in the vineyard. See, even in Christ's death, Christ's rejection, God is continuing to work out his purpose, his will. Because God, the Lord, is dominant. Even the defeat, if you want to call it that, of Christ when he died on the cross was accomplishing the Father's ultimate purpose. The parable is testimony to the sure purposes of God conveyed. And I think that sent a real hope to the believers in Rome, to whom Mark is writing. You're being persecuted. Some of you are dying. Scott dies tomorrow. Rick dies Tuesday. Joy goes Wednesday. Whether it be burning, lighting Nero's garden, or just for sport, being thrown to the wild animals. And they're thinking, they killed the tenants in the parable. They killed the son, Jesus. What should we expect? We should expect some difficulty also. But God, the Lord, is working out his purpose for his glory. So you read this parable. The Lord is working out his will, his purpose. Christ is being lifted up even though he dies. Now as we think about this parable, we may say, what's that have to do with me today? Religious leaders rejected Christ. Have any bearing in us today? I want to share a couple applications as we think about this passage with Jesus being the capstone as he confronted the religious leaders of his day. Just a couple ways that we might reject Christ today. One way that we would reject Christ is through unrecognized or unreconciled relationships. You see, how do you reject Christ through unreconciled relationships? Well, see, Christ came so that we could be reconciled to the Father. We can be reconciled to God. Our reconciliation to God is to be demonstrated in living reconciled relationships in day-by-day life. So Ruth Ann and I have a difficulty, and um, I'll use myself in this case. I wrong her deeply, 
I'm, I'm right and wronging her because she's just not what she should be. She's not responding the way she should be. And she comes to me and says, Dan, can we resolve this? You know, you hurt me deeply. And, no, I'm not going to resolve it because you need to get some things in your life straightened out. And we go on weeks with an unresolved, unreconciled relationship. Oh, we exist together. We talk together. But there's a barrier there. I'm rejecting Christ. How am I rejecting Christ? I'm rejecting the Son who came to reconcile me to God, and I display my reconciliation to God by being reconciled to my wife in this case. I'm rejecting Christ, His power, what He has done, and what He has provided. In Matthew chapter 18, we won't turn there, we find that Jesus gives an account, you know, in terms of how often you should forgive. And the account is you forgive innumerable times. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about relationships and being reconciled. Our reconciliation to God is to be seen and our reconciliation to others. After Ruth and I get married... Still had some interaction with people down home. And one time my mother called me quite a few years after we were married. And she says, Dan, I need some counsel. And I said, what do you need counsel for? And she went over a big long row about a situation that someone she knew was involved in. And she said, Dan, what do I do? This person I know is a believer. And the other person that is involved in this situation is a believer. And they're unreconciled. In fact, they're going to go to court. I said, Mom, you know, your counsel should be that if both of these people have been reconciled to God, they can be reconciled to one another. To my knowledge now, both men are dead. And they died being unreconciled. They were rejecting Christ. See, the religious leaders are rejecting Christ, saying he is not who he claims to be. We don't want to respond to him. But what were they doing? Rejecting Christ. Because Christ came for reconciliation. So when I carry around unforgiveness and unsecond unreconciled relationship with another person because I'm unwilling to be reconciled. I better step back and think, who am I rejecting? I think another possible application is that do we seek to lure on believers to big names to events, to services, to programs, to worship or music styles, or offering what they might want with music with an intent to share Christ. Ah, if we offer this musical group, people will come. If we offer this program, people will come. If we have this type of worship service, people will come.
question, where's Jesus? Jesus says, if I am lifted up, I will draw people unto myself. So with that thought in mind, are we neglecting that God desires to use fruit of the Spirit relationships, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control to attract unbelievers? Remember what Jesus said? When he's speaking to his disciples, by all this men will know that you're my disciples if you have a magnificent program. If you have this music that appeals to unbelievers. He said, they will know you're my disciples because you love one another. Relationships. Ruth Ann grew up in a much different environment than I did in terms of church, in terms of family. Not an issue of which was better, which was worse. That's not the point. It's just that it had a very, very deep influence on Ruth Ann and a very, very deep influence on me. So we started dating and we get married and I ended up becoming, quote, unquote, a Baptist. At different times we would talk and she always wanted to marry a pastor. I was planning to be a farmer when we started dating. But anyway, I ended up in Bible school preparing to be a pastor. And a number of times she would say to me, and she still says to me at times, but Dan, do you understand what I went through? And I'll say, I'm not sure I do. I hear. See, I grew up in all my years from age five or six till the time I left home with one pastor. Ruth Ann grew up with changing every couple years. And she said sometimes her dad would come home from a deacon's meeting, 11 or 12 o'clock at night, starting at 7 o'clock, and I'd say, honey, what do they do? She said, well, dad's not in a very good mood, and he wasn't in a very good mood the next day. And I got to know some people in the church. And some of them attempted to encourage me as I prepared for ministry. But that church has had relational struggles for many years. The community looks at that church and doesn't say, my I want to hear their message. They look at the church and say, I don't want the message. Because reconciled relationships, fruit of the Spirit relationships, attract unbelievers. What's going on? Everyone else is fighting. They have difficulty, but they're seeking to resolve it. They're seeking to love. They're seeking to be kind. They're seeking to be gentle. They're seeking to be patient. Oh, they have their struggles. But they're pursuing fruit of the Spirit relationships. Tied in with the same thing. How about just the whole issue of humility, brokenness, 
and holiness. I was probably pastoring here 10 years and someone came to me and said some pretty strong things and said, you know, you created some real trouble. I said, I didn't know I created some real trouble. And it was with another believer, someone who attends our church and the person is still living and we get along fine. I thought, if I created some problems, there's only one solution. I need to be humble. So I went to this person, or went to two people, and I said, would you please explain to me what happened? I don't understand what happened. I don't know. I'm not sure what I did that I created such a problem. And they explained what happened. I wasn't trying to cause any problem, but, you know, I hurt some people. And I said, I really hurt you. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? That was humbleness. I went in brokenness. I wanted to be reconciled. If I was wrong, I wanted to be humble. I listened to, listened to what they had to say and then sought forgiveness. See, that's how God wants to help people to see Christ. We can do all kinds of things. You can have all kinds of programs and all kinds of services. And I'm not saying they're all wrong. But God wants to use our relationships to lift up Christ. What would have happened in the two men that I mentioned down home if they had resolved that? Myself and some others down home would have said, man, there's two proud, stubborn haughty men that we have known for years and they resolved that. What changed them? I think I want to go with them to where they worship because they're different. I knew them years ago, but they're different now. That opens the door to share Christ. And we'll wrap it up here in a second. Just the whole issue of hospitality. Opening our homes to unbelievers, inviting them in. Why? To do what Christ says we're to do. See, when we're not hospitable, who ultimately do we reject? Do we not fail to lift up Christ? Very, very strong movement in our culture today, Christian culture today, to try to lure on believers to come to here. And there's a strong temptation to try to present something that will lure them. But if they come because we're offering something that they might like, we have lowered Christ. But if they come because they say, there's Joe and Eunice, I don't understand them, they still are madly in love after 52, three, 53 years of marriage. They want to be together. I might go to the church that they go to and say, what in the world is going on in their lives? Who are they?
You know, I've been watching Dan on the job. I'm speaking as one of Dan's coworkers, and uh, you know, Dan always wants to do everything with excellence. He's concerned about quality. He's concerned about relationships. If something isn't quite right, he goes back and corrects it. What is it about Dan that makes him different? And I've noticed when he's confronted by the boss, he responds with humility and gentleness and patience. And what's different about him? Come up and says, Dan, what's, what's going on in your life? Well, it's just Jesus, you know. He's working in my life. Can you tell me more? Tell me when you, where you go to church. I want to go with you. I just want to see what's happening in your church because of you. That's lifting up Christ. May not, it may not be wrong to have all these other things. But God wants us to lift up Jesus. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we don't want to break the pencil that is new and that is good and keep the old one. We don't want to tear up a $100 bill, reject that to keep the $1 bill. Father, we don't want to reject Christ as the religious leaders did in Jesus' day, to keep our traditions and our methods and so on. Help us to really stop and think and understand, Father, that you are concerned that Christ be lifted up and exalted. May we grasp, even in a small way, how we can lift up and exalt Christ in our day-by-day lives. And in light of what we discussed this morning, may we not only hear, but apply it in our lives. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.